You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shama Bracha, this is Gonic Literature, and what we're going to talk about tonight is very well known. I would assume that every bar mitzvah boy who studies for his tefillah is quite familiar with this, and obviously every adult who attends uh, the show on Shabbos is familiar with it. Uh, but I would qualify that by saying that what we're talking about is primarily those that are uh, davening out of Orthodox shuls and those that are davening in Ashkenazi minyanim, because it seems like uh, this is not something that we do see outside that. And that's part of really today's discussion, which is really about pinpointing its provenance and explaining its conspicuous absence, yikum purkon. Yikum purkon, it's, what is its provenance? How old is it? Where is it from? Is it, would it be right to call this gaonic literature? When we say gaonic literature, as we've said often, we're talking about the period from about 640 common era to about 1040. So we're talking about, is it from that period of those 400 years? Is it earlier or later? That's one thing. And the other thing, which I think is a related question, is explaining its conspicuous absence. I mentioned before that if you dive in an Asfardi show, that, you, that you are, you're not going to be saying it. Sfardim do not say yikum purukun. Um, and it's more than just the absence of yikum purukun in modern synagogues or even over the last couple of hundred years or the last 500 years. We do not find the Yukum Purukun prayer um, in the Sidurim of Rav Sadia and Rav Amram. Those are the Sidurim that were sent by those great leaders of the Gaonic era. And it was those Sidurim that were the basis of the Sidurim that we have today. It would seem that something that was a, if it's true that this was something that is at least as old and it stems from the Gaonim, why isn't it, why doesn't it show up in those Sidurim that represent the directives of Rav Amram and then later Sadja about what they believe should be the ritual prayers for Jews throughout the world? Why isn't it there? What's also interesting, though, is that even though mention of of Yikum Purkun does happen with the Jews of Provence, the Baal Hamor, one of the premier uh, Talmudists of his day, uh, also the Sefer Hamachim, and so what happened to it, and why would it have not shown up, what, and what does it really mean? So those are some of the questions that we have here for tonight in our exploration of Gaonic literature. The way it has come down in most Siduri Ashkenaz, it comes down as two similar paragraphs. As you can see, there's two Yukum Purukons, right? Yukum Purukon 1, followed by Yukum Purukon 2. The third part of what then we have a a prayer in standard uh, 
biblical or Mishneic Hebrew. All right, let's talk about these three sections. Your Kumporkums in Aramaic, right? Right. The two Yukumporkums are Aramaic. The Mishabarach, Richard, is in Hebrew. And they all seem to be part of a, of a piece. We'll see where that stems from in the sources. But first, let's just take a look and familiarize ourselves with the text again. Yukum Purkon. There should be established. Yukum, right? It should be established. What should be established? Purkon. A, a, uh, a saving. A, uh, a release from, from a bad situation. A change. A, a, a salvation. Salvation should be established. And where does that come from? Of course, min shamaya, from heaven, from shamayim. China v'chista. And now we are saying that what is the nature of this salvation that we want to somehow send out? We don't know to who. We want it to be, first of all, china v'chista. We want it to be grace and compassion or loving kindness, rachamim, chayin v'chesed v'rachamim. We want it to be, we want it to be chaye ariche, we want it to be long life, umizona revicha, and we want, we, we want it to be also enough v'sayot adishmaya, and help from God. We want help, the whatever it is, ubar yaskufa, and a general healthy body. All right. Unahora malia. Nahora means light. Malia means very good light. Now, I'm actually a little bit of a, a stickler for good light. I always try to find lamps. My wife is always scolding me for my looking around for the better lamp. Uh, at a garage sale, maybe this lamp will give us some more light. It, it seems like the idea of of ex- excellent light is probably a metaphor. Nahoramalya, maybe it means an inner light, an intellectual understanding. Um, I, I'll tell you why I sort of um, am a little bit suspect of overinterpreting here. Because we're going to see that depending on who this was meant for, the words need to be clear. Now, I always thought Nahara Malia means eyesight, good eyesight. Right, which would be, in other words, you can see light that's good because if you see well, so you, Nahora, which is the light of is, is the light is is, is is strong, Harvey, so you see well, right? It might be your inner sight. It might just be the fact that you don't need glasses. Um, what I'm trying to say is, is that if, it's, if this uh, paragraph and it's Aramaic, the fact that it's in Aramaic, and one of the reasons is that it, it was meant to be easily understood, then to look for subtle, like secret meanings here, would might be counterintuitive. I'm not saying it's not true, but Nahira Malia might mean um, what we call uh, a greater sight, uh, hunch, hunches, if you will. 
Rabbi Art School says a lofty vision is how they translate it. Right. So lofty vision doesn't sound like what Harvey is saying either, right? Good eyesight is not lofty vision. It's more like a person who, when he goes to the eye doctor, probably can't read the fifth line, but he is a person who sees the possibilities of a better world and of things in a more elevated state. So as I said, Nahoramalia is a little bit of a, a cryptic term. I think it could be interpreted in, in a number of ways. It's a poetic term. And uh, therefore, I'm sort of staying away from coming up with what I think is definitive. All right. Zara Chayevikayoma. So these are children that are alive and not just alive, but seemingly well enough that we expect them to have a decent life expectancy. So now we haven't necessarily said the object of all this good stuff yet. Chayin and Chesed and Rachamim. But here we go, Zara Chayvikayama, Zara de la Yivsek Vidila Yivto Mi Piskame Araisa, children. And again, you know, the Bali Musar uh, have a, a field day with this, with these terms that first of all, they don't stop. <laughs> there's no stop and there's no batola. <laughs> there's no stop from what they're doing. And there's also nothing, there isn't a, an obviation or complete cessation, from words and statements of Torah. So now we get to who is the object of this. Our rabbis, the nun meaning ours, right? Our teachers and rabbis. But what's interesting is we have the first term here, Chavruta Kadishta. Hmm. A holy uh, convocation, a holy group. So it could be we're just saying rabbis, wherever they are, represent a holy group. They aren't a one-man show. Maybe every individual rabbi in various cities is a member of this club, which... In like total- a holy brotherhood, Rabbi Kibble, like a holy brotherhood. Like a holy brotherhood. And, and it could be even if this is the one rabbi in Vladivostok and the next rabbi is in, uh, you know, Yehupitz and the other rabbi is in Podunk, they're all part of this Chavaruta Kadishta. Um, that's one way to look at it. Others say that every group of Rabbanim in a city form sort of like a rabbinic alliance that's called the Chavruta Kadishta. What's interesting here is, is that, and and I'll tell you what I would expect, if this sparse portion of the prayers, if this section of Yikum Purukun was meant to sort of be a pledge of allegiance um the leader of Babylonian Jewry, like some have suggested, that it was from Bavel. It's part of Gaonic literature. It was actually, um, it was actually uh, composed by the, the 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 heads of the yeshivot in Bavel, and was sent to these communities for them to sort of like uh, show fealty, and and maybe give some money, right? Um, it, was it meant to be said in the shul after Kriyas HaTorah because this was a time that in that period 
it had developed into a, a time to sort of um, deal with communal uh, strengthening and shoring up communal uh, connections. We know from um, sources post the Gaonic period in the early part of the Middle Ages that this was a time before Musaf when we knew everybody was already in Shul where announcements were made castigating members of the community who had sinned. People were able to come up and and perhaps uh, uh, voice their problems with 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 their husbands, their wives, or other things uh, who weren't giving a get. So it, we know from from at least a little bit later in Jewish history that this was incredibly sort of like a break period. I mean, you would expect from what we know from the earlier Sidurim that there shouldn't be breaks. One of the pushbacks that occurred in the 19th century when in German Orthodox synagogues and other places, there was a movement to have the rabbis speak the way they still do uh, after the Torah is put away, after Ashrei was said, was that it was contra, it was contra many of the statements that the Rishonim had said about how you should go straight from Ashrei. There shouldn't be any breaks. Ashrei and the Kaddish go together. Um, the Kaddish that you say right before the Shmon Esrei of Musaf was meant to, uh, in, in a way, uh, be a complement to the Psukim of Tehillah Ledavid, that's part of what the, the Psalms, and therefore the Poskim say there should be no breaks. It should go straight into, into Musaf. What I'm trying to point out is, is that from a halachic point of view, we should get our business done. But there was a communal issue here that because of the length of the the Torah reading, the Torah is needed to be uh, returned. What what, what started to develop, at least in in period of the Gaonim and maybe earlier, definitely in the time of the Rishonim was, there was like time to do other stuff. There was there was a place to to shore up the community, and if that is the case, then it makes sense that the the Babylonian exilic would send out this this these uh, this statement and say, "Well, you guys are stopping anyway. You're making going to be making mishaberach as we're going to see uh, for those that have died, for other people in the community. Now's the time to remember us." Remember the people who are supporting you by sending you your young rabbis, the ones who are the Torah, uh, the people who are guarantors of Torah throughout the world. Remember, as the Middle Ages started to move forward, the hegemony of the Babylonians started to recede. So it maybe it would make sense for there to be some sort of declaration that they encouraged everyone to say, pledge fealty to, although they're not here, but they're in Babylon. And over there in Baghdad, we need to know how great they are, and we have to talk about how much we owe them and how much we want God to take care of them. And that means after Shabbos, we'll probably pass around the plate for them. That's a theory 
that has been floated as to what, what Yukum Purukun is about. Now, I, I'd like to poke holes in that theory based on at least the text that we have here. Um, and again, I can show you some alternate versions of the text uh, that go as early as the students of, of, of Rashi, the Machser Vitri, from the 12th century. But let's take a look at this as the standard text without getting too technical. And let's see if that theory holds water. Okay. So it's the Rabban Chavrusa Kedishta, Di Ba'ara Di Yisrael and Di Ba'bavel. Now we've spoken here in this forum about the lip service that was paid by the Babylonians to the Rabbanim in Israel. But it was sometimes an uneasy truce between them. In many ways, and we'll talk about it in, 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 in perhaps in further uh, discussions as to whether the amount of respect that was there, but at least on record, you could say Israel comes before Bovel. Okay, but what about this? Who are the, with certain uh the ones that headed the um the the biannual classes that took place Yarchikala, right? The Yarchikala. So they so the needed administrators to sort of like organize who would show up, what they would be studying where the people who showed up would be staying, how they would be learning. They were the Reishe Kale. Now, those were not just, you know, pencil pushers, but they were not the heads of the programs. Now, it could be they're mentioned first. Again, they're, 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 it's a specific they're mentioned first because maybe the average uh, outsider living in these lands, those might be the first people they run into because you know, if they were lucky enough to take those two months off, those were the people they would interact with. But it's strange that they should be mentioned first. And then we have Reish Galvasa. Now the Reish Galvasa, I could have understood it being mentioned first. Uh, they were in many ways, the, they were the political heads of the community. Often uh, these men were Tamida Chachamim, in, in, in some respect, uh, they their power the, the political head who dealt with the Muslim government um, and also was supported by communal funds, but wasn't necessarily, although they sometimes had their own yeshiva, that wasn't their prime purpose. Now we have the next statement. We have Reishe Mesifato. Now we have the heads of the yeshiva. And then we have the judges who who basically set themselves up in the gates of all the cities. If this was supposed to be um, a prayer or uh, for the, the great power, either the Reish Galusa should be first or the Reish Masifta. It's interesting that we have and it could be once again that Marana Rabbana Chavrusa Kadishta is really a term that includes all rabbis, no matter what their specific role is. Like, like Dr. Kogan said, the Brotherhood. Um, but I find it strange. Reishe Kali is the first one mentioned. 
which means not only them, but of course, their students. And then you have a cholman, the Oskin Baraisa. Anybody who's studying Torah, anyone who's studying Torah who's, who's involved, Malka di Alma the king of the world, should bless them. Yafish Chayehon, he should extend the, their life. And fulfill their days. Their days should be fulfilling. They shouldn't, they shouldn't just have longevity without vitality in their days. And once again, this would be seemingly the same, uh, repetitive. Their years should be long. And now, they should, if anything has, uh, if they are in any state of sorrow now, any state of difficulty, they should be, they should be, uh, uh, should be taken out of that, and they should be saved from any sort of pain, from any sort of pressure, or any sort of negative things that might be happening to them, things that might be generating illness of any sort of 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 of, of mental or physical illnesses. And then we say, wherever they are, whatever their state, God should be with them, helping them, supporting them, for all time. Now, um, was this a statement the way we do it, that everybody says it? It would seem from uh, material from uh, the 16th and 17th century, that originally Yukum Purkun was said by the Chazan. Um, it was the Chazan who said it. Um, both the uh, Machzor Vitri, the student of Rashi, and it goes as late as the Taz, Reb David Cohen, in the beginning of the 17th century, say that it was said by one person. It's interesting how it is devolved to a point that everybody says it, and the Chazan then repeats it in a sort of a dramatic fashion. Um, now, the other Yukum Purkun, and again, I'm going to speed up a little bit, is pretty much the same as the first. However, as you can see, it's specifically to Lakol Kehila Kadisha Hadain. It's for this specific community. In other words, paragraph one is for the Holy Brotherhood, zeroing seemingly in on some of those Babylonian leaders. And the second paragraph is for this holy community. Now, I don't know where all of you live. I know that for some people, the idea of calling their community Kehila Kedosha uh, generates uh, sort of a chuckle <laughs> to say that their community is a holy one. Um, we all know the faults of our community. Uh, we can go to shul and see how everyone is checking out their phones during Hazaras Hashats, perhaps if they could, or talking or whatever. Um, and yet we want people seemingly to, even wherever they are, to see their community 
as a community of holiness. And this community is holy. And what we said in grandiose terms for greater Judaism, we want that true for this community. And we actually mentioned that it's top to bottom. Rav Ravaya im Zeiraya. Which means people who are in a large size, people of great learning, older people, im Zeiraya is younger, smaller size. And we wanted to include Tafla, small children, and this to have found uh, a home among Sephardic Jews and in, you know, among, uh, we should have found it somewhere in Gaonic literature. Um, and, and it doesn't appear there. It doesn't appear in the Gaonic Sidurim, and it doesn't seem to appear in the wealth of material in the Cairo Geniza or anywhere, uh, any discussions about this. We don't have questions from the North African or Spanish communities about changes in this or what this might mean or any sort of offhanded reference to that. And yet we find it Aramaic and all in Provence and in France and in Germany. So you're right, Miriam. It's strange, isn't it? It's strange, and right, and it, it, it isn't just well. It's Aramaic, but it's the the tone is all about what the concerns that would concern what we call Ashkenazi Jewry, because it would seem at least paragraph one, you know, talks about Reish Kale, Reish Galvosa, right? All these types of what we call even today anachronistic terms, shown that in many old machzorim, there's only one yikum purakun. There aren't two. Uh, it, it, it seems to uh, have, uh, two seems to be the standard now in all the sidurim, but especially since the, the repetitive nature of it, it would seem that the, the purpose of paragraph two is to say, here in Podunk, Iowa, yes, wherever we are, we also have a holy kehila. And we are also want to give a bracha to everybody here. Um, and they should get everything that we wanted to the to, to everyone else. Um, now, there is a halachic question that is bandied about, which is what happens if you're at home and you're not able to come to the synagogue, you're not able to come to shul, uh, what do you say? Um, do you say paragraph two or not? Or do you say paragraph one? And Rabbi Ephraim Zalman who wrote his, a textbook, he was a balabayit, but he was known as one of the great poskim of his time. He was a balabayit, meaning he did not have to uh, be a rov of a city and get his income from uh, from congregants, but rather he was wealthy at a chain of, as Rabbi, I heard Rabbi Gifter once say, of hardware stores, uh, Raphraim Zarmagoas writes that if one is alone at home, what he does is he sort of takes elements of uh, the the second paragraph and he inserts it into like a, a, a first paragraph description. But he must still, Margolia said, uh, the way he understood 
the, uh, the Ashkenaz custom, no matter who you are, you need to say this. So even though you're not in shul <laughs> with everybody else, <laughs> you're not uh, there with a whole plethora of people hearing this statement, um, it, it had become entrenched to the point that it was expected, even if you're at home, that this is part of what you say. It's almost like becomes part of the prayers. And we'll you talk about because in the art scroll it says you only say if you're not with a minion, you only say the first paragraph. Right. So that's based on Margolis's psak. And Margolis says what you do is when you get to the first paragraph, you also mention, you also mention, he says, you say, we'll call even though they're not there. So you basically say that even though you're sick at home, you don't want to, Margola says, you don't want to diss the fact that you are also part of an important city and you'd like them to get some benefits of these prayers. Now, we might not accept Margot what he's saying, but he, he it really shows you, Richard, that how deeply entrenched this section is <laughs> you take a look at the at the at the hebrew section that follows you'll see that it's a, it's specifically to the people of your community and it's about what about the people of your community you're talking about generally the community that i'm with should receive a bracha and specifically the ones who have paid, the ones who have perhaps used their private homes and vacated those homes in order to allow them to be the house of prayers. Everybody who takes the effort <laughs> to come to show, which might sometimes be difficult, but also the people who donate the monies behind the uh, for Havdalah, uh, for Kiddush, the ones that keep the lights on, the as we would say, they, who pay for the electric bills, um, the ones who realized that the shuls were places that consistently had guests who were passing through and they needed to have food for them. And the, we know that communities have indigent individuals who need daily, weekly sustenance, and there are people who give for them. And in general, people who in many ways that can't even be recounted, uh, dedicate their lives, or if not their whole life, but are definitely what we would call communal individuals working on uh, issues that, that surround their community. And what we're saying here is that the same one who gave the bracha to the Avos will bless that community and God, of course, although they're not seeing the payment today, God will definitely take recognition of all these gaboyim and planners and board members do, and God should uh, heal them, uh, take away their illness, give them a slicha, whatever they're doing. So really this one, you could tell, is ra 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 for the people in the community in the shul this mishaberach the what's strange is the yukumpurkun in other words one could have thought <laughs> if you were probably a, a, a shul rabbi 
or a show member or somebody of the board, and you wanted to use this time, this open time in between the Torah reading and Musaf, which anyway was sort of a time to sort of like give the news and develop things in the community, you would want to give a shout out for the people who are keeping this shul going. (laughs) So the third one is really the one that is the most understandable. Interesting, though, that, um, (laughs) right? It's interesting, of course, that uh, it's not in Aramaic. Some of it perhaps is is included in things that we said in um, in the uh, in the first two, but just to emphasize, if if I would ask the people that are here with us tonight, that the last paragraph doesn't stress something that the first two do. It's true. The last paragraph stresses um, a lot of the physical aspects of the community. It mentions specifically the building. It mentions the 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 energy, the fire, the wine, the food. But what doesn't it mention? It doesn't mention the Torah, right? <laughs> it doesn't mention Rabbanim. It doesn't mention uh, the idea of of study. It doesn't right even the second paragraph. Um, right. Even the second paragraph at least talks about um, the uh, uh, the when it talks about the blessing of children, it talks about the blessing of children being ones that will study Torah, right? Children who won't stop for an instant for their study. And the first paragraph, of course, is all about uh, the Rabbanon and the Chavrusa Kadishta. Paragraph three, which is in Hebrew. Um, is 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 more the people you know doing the grunt work down here, but are they also contributing uh, to the big yeshivas wherever they are uh, and providing support? I guess if you keep the lights on in the shul, then that's helping the people who have shiurim come and learn there. Um, but it's interesting that the third paragraph seems to be very um, prosaic. And non-elevated. Simon Reish Peydalid is the tour's description of the Haftorah. And um, basically, uh, the tour describes, you know, what the Haftorah is, but he doesn't necessarily, and he talks about returning the Sefer Torah to the Ark, Machzirin Sefer Torah Lumkomo, but he doesn't mention anything about the break. There's nothing mentioned of the break at all. Now, the Beit Yosef was aware that works that preceded the tour already had indicated that this break time, and by the way, we have something similar to it every Monday and Thursday. If you go to show on Monday and Thursday, you know that as the Sefer Torah is being rolled and put away, uh, there are there are tefillot that are that are said, what we call the hiratzos, right? Ending with achenu kobeis yisrael. So really, as Isamar Ellenbogen has pointed out, um, you know this is a very similar. It isn't just Shabbos was empty time. Every day that the Torah was read, 
there was an advantage that was taken the advantage of some of that sort of downtime, but it was definitely expanded upon on Shabbos. The Shiboli Aleket from the uh, late twelfth uh, century, from Reb Tzidkiah Harofe. Let's take a look. He says, "Acha Kriyas Atara Nogu Lahasker Nishamot Ulevaracha Oskin Betzarchet Sibur." So in Italy, there was already the custom to masker nishamot. Not, not just on Yisker, what we do with the Ashkenazi communities uh, on various days of the holidays and on Yom Kippur, but every Shabbos, every Shabbat, there was an idea of using that time to mentioning and, and giving tzedakah on their behalf, to mention the ones who had gone and to donate on their behalf. And also, to be mevarich those that were involved. So here you see the Mishabeirach that we're talking about. So it's at least as old as the late 11th century, or early 12th century, or the late 11th century, that that had been a minag in Italy and beyond to give a bracha to those who are keeping the shul going. Nothing here about Yikum Purkun. Then he quotes his brother, Rav Binyamin. Now this was a family that made their living as doctors. Tzidkiyu Arofe, Baruch Arofe. It seemed like they were all proud of the fact that they uh, practiced medicine. And what he says is, Lefisha Shabbos Hu Yom Menucha so here we have something quite mystical. So we know that Shabbos is like the world to come. And we know in the world to come, those that have died somehow will have either a second chance or some sort of recalibration. And therefore, even though the belief of many Jews was that people who have, especially those that have recently died, are in a way undergoing punishments or uh, suffering din, meaning they are in the vice of some sort of post-life judgment, that doesn't happen on Shabbos. On Shabbos, that doesn't occur. So therefore, since something special is happening to our parents, our teachers, our brothers and sisters, we should mention them that they're also, and we should tell people that they're getting something from the Shabbos, and we should daven for them. And we also give a bracha for, as we saw in the third paragraph, Me'ilim are those, by the way, the me'il aren't just the winter coats that have been giving to people who have a problem, the me'ilim are are what cover the Sifrei Torah. O kol davar l'chvodat Torah. 
So here we see, by the way, a little bit different than our paragraph, that this bracha was for those who were honoring the Torah scroll, or anything that honors the Torah, and the ones that are learning Torah. Now here, Binyamin Harofe, quoted by his brother, adds the words, V'hachai yitain elibo. So basically what he says is like this, that by making a big deal about it, the kid that's sitting in the first row, the guy who hasn't yet cared enough to donate his time to the planning committee, will say, hey, look at all this honor these people are getting. And hey, this is great news. I get mentioned in Shul. So it's a good way by making this break and announcing it for the people that are alive to see, hey, this is something I should be doing at all, right? All there is in Shiboya Leket from Italy is what we would call the third bracha. Nothing about the rabbis from Bovel or anything like that. Um, as you can see, um, we've, we've posited a number of questions. We haven't given much of an answer. Um, one of the questions that I half answered was, why are we doing this on Shabbos? Well, um, we can already imply from statements made by uh, non-mystical thinkers was, well, when else are the people here? And all the issues about praying on Shabbos for individuals, and and other questions about that um, seem to be pushed to the side because, look, this is the time that we got to make an impression. This is the time that perhaps you know, interesting works that came out of the Middle Ages is the book that's called Sefer Achsidim. We've talked about the various influences that helped shape this book and the group of Hasidic Ashkenaz that were its authors. Most people attributed to one person, Rabbi Yehuda HaChosid, but we know that there was a group of who we of, of the Hasidic Ashkenaz that included uh, the Baal Rokeach and others. And we know that the, the Sefer Achsidim, uh, there are various versions of it. This is a version that only appears in, I believe, uh, what's called the Margolis edition, the standard edition, the Chidoz edition, it doesn't uh, occur in the Makitzener Domim edition. And it really is very strange, but it really shows you, again, the provenance of of, of Yikum Purukun. Let's read it together. Lama Haruchos Machavlan Erev Shabbos. Why is it that demons, spirits, seemingly that at one time had inhabited human bodies, but are now ghost-like, are unleashed on Friday. Why is it that Shabbos, you would expect to be completely, as we saw before, like, oh, there's no Gehenna happening. It would seem that these de- demons are, in a way, like it, it should be limited. Let's take a look and see the answer. You know why it's happening? 
Yeah. Because, <laughs> because since since the souls are not in their isolation chamber, they're not in their cells limited in hell, who which ruchos? The ruchos shall reshoyim bimisosan, the ones who are evil, the ones who should be in hell, the ones who should be paying penance. Well, Shabbos and Shabbat all over, and on Shabbos they are sort of freed from those shackles. So what happens to them? They become, they become agents of danger. They start hurting. Kimo Kol told us Kayan Shemesu. Now the told us Kayan, my friends, those were most of the people who died. In the flood, right? Those were Cain's children, right? Cain's children who didn't make it. Noah comes from Shays, the Shays line. And of course, they say that Noah's wife, uh, Naama, is the Cain woman that keeps the Cain uh, family alive, the Cain seed alive. But, um, right? So basically, um, where are they? The, the children of Cain, those are the ones who are these demons. Hmm. So the same way the Cain uh, children lived and they become demons. So in the same way, all the Rishoyim who unfortunately have to spend time in hell, they turn into avenging demonic powers of God. What happens to them? They can go out there. Now, they won't hurt you if you're a nice Shabbos dicker person who's keeping Shabbos, who went to the mikvah, who's singing Zmiros, who's loving Shabbos, who's eating this soup and is saying a Dvar Torah and going to an Oneg and going to the mikvah and doing everything else you're supposed to do on Shabbos. But they are able to hurt the Mechalolei Shabbosos. <laughs> the people who are being Machal Shabbos, the living ones, they can discover that all of a sudden they're getting those guys are getting heart attacks, those guys are getting slapped in the face, there's telekinesis happening to them. Oh, even if they're not Machal Shabbos, they're sad. They're using the Shabbos to sort of walk around like Eeyore and being depressed over the world and nothing's good and I hate what's going on. They don't realize that that depression is also a form of Chilo Shabbos. Oh, I feel Miss Adenbo. Or they're not enjoying Shabbos. <laughs> they're just saying, eh, Shabbos, okay, okay, I'm just going to sleep, okay, all right. No, they're not taking advantage of the of the of the Yershalmi Kugel. They're not taking advantage of the of, of, of the, the guests in the house and the more light. So all these people are levels of Machalali Shabbos who are unwittingly making themselves targets of these demonic agents who are really the souls of people who, since Shabbos is not, they're not suffering on Shabbos, they're, they're part of Shabbos too. It's not just that these the Rishoyim are getting off on Shabbos and they're basically just waiting for the bell to ring so they can go back to the salt mines. They really are also part of 
of sort of the Shabbos experience, uh, sort of like needling and hurting the people who don't get what Shabbos is about. So he says, Lakach Ruchos That's what that's what's going on. Th- those are the illnesses that are being unleashed on specifically Shabbos by these beings. If you look in Tehillim, what's right after Yoshe Beseser Elyon? Yoshe Beseser Elyon is called the Shear of Pegoyim. That's what it's called. It's called the Shear of Pegayim. And that's what we say as we accompany the dead bodies to, in the cemetery. That's the, that's the Shear, the Tehillim that we say that sort of affords protection against uh, being hurt, right? That's the Shir Shal Pagoyim is right next to Mizmer Shirli Yom HaShabbos because the two are sort of like a piece of the same thing. Lakach Omer B'Shabbos Yokum Purkun. Now again, this is a statement written sometime in the 13th century. Why on Shabbos do we say Yom Purkun and specifically say we want these people to have Barias Gufa? We want people to be healthy because there are people out there that might get sick and be unhealthy because of, and we know, and on Yom Tif, you wouldn't say this. In other words, on Yom Tif, they didn't say Yukum Purkun. They only said it on Shabbos because on Shabbos, there was a greater possibility. And even, right, even the bar, and again, remember who was the first one mentioned? The Reish Kale, right? <laughs> but the Tamir Kachamim, I guess you know those. You, you would think those people know what Shabbos is, but the the Sefer Chassidim is saying the reason why we are praying, and which is unusual to pray in Aramaic, to pray on Shabbos, all of those things seem to be counter to what Shabbos should be, and the reason is is because what's unleashed on Shabbos is this these these demonic souls of those that. That, that that are that they're doing their non Gehenim job, and therefore you power. oh go ahead, right? And therefore he says nishamo shemazikim. In other words, you could catch from a bacterium, you could catch from somebody next to you who sneezed. You could get cured by somehow taking a certain antibiotic or pill, but if you are getting hurt by these mazikim. <laughs> you can't use normal uh, medicines to be cured. <laughs> you need God. And that's part of the reason behind why we say Yukum Purkun, why we say it on Shabbos. So this is so wild about this counterintuitive idea that you need to be more careful on Shabbos than during the week. There is... We we say uparos aleinu suka sholom, right? We say our hashkivenu prayer, right? Uh, asks for even more protection in some ways than it does during the week. Now Richard might be right that that might be uh, con- confined to the Friday night, but this is this is a very um, again it, it clearly shows. Uh, as Dr. Kogan points out, that Yukum Purkin made its way into Germany, into France, and was already, you know, analyzed 
as 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 as, as exact as the Sefer Chassidim does. That, oh, why is it not uh, that my Rebbe Rav Herschler printed in the seventies? It's the Siddur of Shlomo of Garmaisha, who was the generation before Rashi, together with the Siddur of some of the Hasidic Ashkenaz. Um, and he printed a sort of a double work. I want to show you a little bit here of what it says when it comes to Yikum Porkun. So he says, when he comes to the Siddur of Rav Shlomo, Yikum Porkun Kvar Amarnu Seder Tfilos Bebovel Hiskinu. I've already said that prayers started in Bovel. And they were meant to be said in Aramaic. In order that everyone there should understand that what we're trying to daven for is the Torah people. And as Rabbi Benyamin said, as we saw quoted by the Beit Yosef, when people hear this, they will want to study. Okay, so what does he mean here when he says, "I've already said that the prayers were 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 instituted and crafted in Bavel, and they were meant to be said in uh, Aramaic." This seems to be incorrect, <laughs> as far as we know. The prayers, as the Rambam says, were instituted by the rabbis in Israel. In, in the king, in well, in in, in the most beautiful language of Lashon Hakodesh. So, in order to understand this, we have to see what he writes. This author, in a previous statement, when he talks about Kaddish. So, the question is, why is the Kaddish in Aramaic? So he says. Why is the Kaddish in Aramaic? So, Shamati, Lefi She'ein Malachi Ashores, Makirin Beloshan Aramit. Okay. So, is that bad that they don't understand the Kaddish? So he says, Afil Yikatragu Bisharat Fila, Kan Ein Makatragin. So he is positing the angels as sort of jealous cousins to us. So even though they might have problems with our other davening and trying to dissuade God from listening, here they can't. Isn't really, that a member of Rabbi Yechanan? Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi Yechanan took the opposite, Harvey. Rabbi Yechanan says that we want them in order to help our tefillos. Right, correct, correct. Right, right. he's the opposite. <laughs> he says that, he says that he says, he says, normally, he says, we don't want Kaddish. The other prayers, we're, we're willing to let them know. And maybe like you're saying, Harvey, could be they'll bring our tefillah in, or could be they say, no, you don't want to let this guy in. But Kaddish, they don't know what it means. And therefore, it's, it's, they're, not gonna, they're not gonna be our advocate and they're not gonna be our, our district attorney against us. Because they don't know what it is. Now, that's what he heard. But he rejects that. He says, 
The Ache Knesset Agdola, remember the ones that put the Tfilah that we thought in what we would call purest Hebrew, so he's saying something different. He's not disagreeing with the Rambam's history of prayer, but there's an unspoken part that the Rambam left out. Remember, they came from Bavel. Many of the Anshik Sagdola had been living in Bavel and came up with Ezra, with Zerubbabel, with Nehemiah. Remember, the language of the people was not pure Hebrew. Hebrew was, a de- was an elevated language. Yes, they had arrived back in Israel, Eretz Israel, but Bavel was still the lingua franca of almost everyone there, especially the women, especially the unlearned. So even though they crafted beautiful Hebrew prayers, the Anche Knesset Hagdola had a subsection of prayers that they wanted the Amcha to say, that they wanted everyone to understand because they were so special. And that was Kaddish. And why was Kaddish so important? Well, first of all, it served a mystical uh, purpose, but also on a simple level. We need, those are the people who need the most encouragement that God is coming back and there is going to be a better planet and they need to know what's being said. So then the question is, what you're saying, Harvey, then everything should be in that language. Why elevate it? Why use highfalutin terms that don't reflect the language or the thought processes of what had become the Jewish people already at the end of Bayesheni, during the first diaspora, and true even in the, as they came to the second base Amitosh, when the Anshakas were operating, they still knew that the average guy on the, the average woman, child, and even regular guy on the street was, was more fluent in Aramaic. So why isn't all of davening in Aramaic? So he says, that's because <laughs> the truth is, is that <laughs> we do want um, the, uh, in some places, we need their help. He says, because as we say, we don't use Aramaic because there are prayers that need the angel's help. Tfila in general is to get stuff that you need. Um, and the truth is, is that we need all the help we can get. Now, there's going to be some angels that are saying, these guys are hypocrites. They don't deserve it. We'll take that chance. We'll hope that the angels are on our side. So stuff that's our essential needs, like Shemona Esrei, those are going to be in uh, in Lashna Kodesh because those are the ones the angels are nodding their heads, and even they understand the words better than what we're saying them, and they like the, the lilt and the beauty of the, uh, of the words, and they will accompany them and help those prayers be accepted. But 
Kaddish is really just praising God. It helps us, but we're not really asking God to do anything for us. So he feels Yikumpurkun is like Kaddish. How old is it? Well, Kaddish was all the way back to the Anshay Knesset according to him. It sounds from the way he's describing things that Yikumpurkun is much older than Babylon, that Yikumpurkun, along with Kaddish, was meant to be said um, some sort of tefillah for the Rabbanim that was meant it's not that, oh, it's the Babylonians. Uh, it, it goes all the way back to the very first original Yishuv in Bavel. That seems to be what he says. Now, again, I don't know if it's backed up by the, by the verbiage there, but he clearly seems to say that it is something that, as he says, it's in Aramaic. Does he mean to say it's 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 a it's sort of like Kaddish? Kaddish is from Achikna and this isn't. Um, so why is again, you know, it, 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 this the statement, if you read it simply, seems to indicate that there was a tradition among some of these Ashkenazic writers, and you can see again it's repeated by uh, the work that's based on this. He says that they were done in Bavel. It sounds like they believed Yukum Purkun was not a Gaonic in something. It came before the Gaonic. It's something that's as essential to Davin. Yukum Purkun is mentioned not by the Beis Yosef, but mentioned by the Ramah. The Ramah mentions what the Beis Yosef didn't put into Shulchan Aruch that Shiboli Aleket to mention the Neshamos of the people that have died and to mention the Tzorach Sibor. But he also says every community has got its own way of doing it. But then he says it's, it's our custom to say Yukum Purkun. And this doesn't violate the cardinal rule of appealing to God on Shabbos. We don't say Avinu Malkeinu on Shabbos. Why do we say Yukum Purkun? Especially like the Sefer Aksidim, save the lives of these people. There might be some Shadim out there. There might be these souls running rampant. We know, and again, this is really, there's probably there's probably 150 different answers as to are we supposed to daven for our individual needs on Shabbos? Are we supposed to beg God for things? So the Ramah says, well, it's not really trin, it's not really trina. It's not like tachnun, where you're really getting personal and crying. It's not really a trina. So therefore, it's not a problem. But he mentions here, as you can see, to say you kumpurkun. Now, the Vilnagon, if we go to his note on the on the Ramah, writes. Lomar, where does this come from? The Perakama the Rosh Hashanah. The Gemara in Rosh Hashanah says, Kiman Matzlinen Haidna. The Gemara wants to know why are we davening for for ill for people that are ill and for Tamida Chachamim to to be strong and healthy? Why are we davening for them? The Gemara says Rosh Hashanah passed already. <laughs> They've already there's already been determined what's going to happen in their lives. <laughs> what do we what do we keep on davening for them? They already got their psak from God. Why why are we davening? 
So you see the Gemara says that it's because of Rabbi Yossi's opinion that Rosh Hashanah is important, but really every single day is a Rosh Hashanah. Every single day a person has a new judgment. And therefore we can change what happened on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and new things occur. And because of that, we daven for the we daven for the Gemara says Meriye Ukitsire. Katsire are people who have shortness of breath, who are older, who are ill, who could fall into illness. The Meriye are the Tamir Chachamim who are generally weak from their studies, who stay up late at night and learn, who seem to be always sickly. So the Vilna Gon says, hey, that's how you see it. You daven for Tamir Chachamim. That's, and he says, if you look at the, the Mordechai writing also uh, in the beginning of the 14th century, the Mordechai says, that's why we say you kumpurkun. And when? On Shabbos. <laughs> because Shabbos is the best time to say it. So the Vilna Gon says, I found the Gemara that mentions where you're supposed to say you kumpurkun. It happens, uh, the Gemara is, is found uh, in, in two places in Shas. The Gemara in Rosh Hashanah and the Gemara in Adarim. So the Vilna Gon, with his typical brilliance, you know, relying on uh, the, the, the Mordechai, who also connects the Kumpurkun to this, says they were doing this in the time of, of Chazal, at the time of Rabbah, of Rabbi Yosef. So it's, it's not as early as the Antje Knesset Hagdola, but the Vilna Gon sees this as way before the period of the Gonim, Yukumpurkun. Again, of course, it just makes the question as to why it disappeared <laughs> even stronger. But I just wanted to share that with you, that um, that there seems to have been, and again, all of these are Ashkenazic-type sources, but the elevation of Yukum Purkun into something you know, <laughs> that, that seems to have a, 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 the provenance is, is quite great. We, I don't think we've really addressed uh, exactly where why it disappeared, but it would seem that again, if you'd have to put me to you know to the wall on this, I would say that you know Dr. Kogan and others says maybe it came from Eretz Yisrael, maybe it, despite it's written in Aramaic, it really was not something that was developed from the Gaonim or pushed by the Gaonim at all. It's something that sounds Gaonic. But doesn't seem to be, and otherwise we would see its its we would see its footprints in in many many other places. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.